0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 3, the book of Acts chapter 3. I also add my own words of welcome, it's good to be here with you, it's an afternoon this morning, preaching down there on one of their anniversary occasions and it was a very blessed time and I trust you'll keep all our little churches in prayer that God will be with them and bless them in these days. And so may the Lord be with us tonight. Let's just have a word of prayer as we come with the Word of God open to consider the message for this evening. Let's pray. Father, we bow in Thy presence. In the name of Thy Son, our Savior, we thank Thee for the one who moves among people, who visits souls, who is able to see and discern the needs of the human heart. We pray, Lord, for Thy passing this way. For thy presence to fill this house, for the sense of thy power to be among us as we gather around the book of God. And so come very near and meet with us, we pray thee. Bless our hearts, grant me the cleansing of the precious blood, the infilling of the Holy Ghost, and may thy spirit come upon those who need the Lord. Even this night may their hearts be drawn out to lay hold on thee. Here, prayer, O God, we ask in Jesus' name, and for His sake, and for His eternal glory. Amen and amen. Acts chapter 3, I want to read from verse number 12, and we'll read down to verse 21. Acts 3, verse number 12, and when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us? as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his Son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you And killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers, but those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His prophets since the world began. Amen, and the Lord will bless the reading of His truth to our hearts. Now, while the times of the ministry of the apostles were not without great challenge, yet they were also seasons and times of the tremendous blessing of God the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2 records the astounding impact of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when about 3,000 sinners in Jerusalem were converted to Jesus Christ. However, on subsequent days, the great end gathering continued. We are told that daily the Lord added to the church those whom he was drawing to himself and saving by his grace. And so truly he was continuing to build his church as he had promised to do. Now there wouldn't be enough space in the Word of God to allow Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, to include every detail of those daily additions of converts to God's Son, such as we find in chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, we have in these two chapters in view another day of mighty power. Actually, it superseded the day of Pentecost in terms of the numbers of converts. The narrative, as I say, runs into chapter 4, and we're informed in chapter 4, verse 4, that about 5,000 came to Jesus Christ. But the striking detail is that these 5,000 were men. If you read that verse carefully, you will see that. Inferring that there were also women, and we would believe most likely young people also, who were converted to the Lord Jesus Christ on this special day that's in view in Acts 3 and in Acts chapter 4. What a day it was for the glory of Christ as the fruit of His redemptive work was brought forth by the Holy Spirit in such abundance. The preacher on this day as at Pentecost was uh, the Apostle Peter. The message he delivered is recorded for us in the second half of this third chapter with the key features uh, being actually this call to repentance that we have in verse number 19 that says in that verse, Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. The word repent, as it is in all of the New Testament, literally, basically means to change one's mind. But at the same time, it means much more. It signifies a discovery of the evil of sin. It signifies mourning over what has been committed against God and against His holy law. It also signifies a determination to forsake sin. Therefore, it is a change of mind in a very, very deep sense. The sinner, when he repents, when he's brought to repentance, or she is brought to repentance, begins to love what once was hated and begins to hate what was previously loved. Repentance is therefore a turning from and also a turning to. In repentance, the sinner with a true sense of sin and a clear understanding of the mercy of God in Jesus Christ turns from sin but well, the Hebrew for that sin as is said, "born in the soul, but a desire also to live in obedience to God and serve God and love God with heart, soul and mind, and follow Him the rest of that person's days in this world. This issue of turning from sin is underlined in Peter's additional words here in verse 19, "Be converted." Be converted. It says, repent ye therefore and be converted. Now the verb to convert means to turn, just like the word repent. But the word convert signifies the positive side of the whole matter that I've already mentioned. In repentance there is the turning away from something that shouldn't be pursued to begin with, turning away from sin. But on the other hand, the word convert means a turning to, and a turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a prominent aspect, as we find, of apostolic preaching. Christ illustrates that particular matter of the twofold turning that's involved in repentance, this turning from sin to the Lord Jesus, to trust in Him as Savior and Redeemer. He illustrates all this in the story of the prodigal. You'll notice that when that young man, according to that, Particular account went away from his home and his father and all that he knew to be right and holy and good. He spent everything in riotous living. He wasted his years. He was lost in his sin. Then it says, He came to Himself. And there you have repentance over sin. He suddenly realized what He had done and where He was and how far away He was from. The Father, and from the Father's house. He came to himself. And then the Lord goes on to portray the young man, the prodigal, returning to his Father's house. And in that aspect of the whole account, we see a new direction in life. We see something entirely different. That young man now seeking after the blessings that were to be found in the Father's house, suddenly realizing how much he had thrown away because of his sin. But thank God brought to himself and then turning and going back to where he really belonged and finding that wonderful welcome that the Father gave him, illustrating how God the Father gives a hearty welcome to the sinner who forsakes sin and comes to trust in the Savior. As Peter preached and addressed the consciences of his hearers, he called on them to forsake the old and embrace the new. He made it clear that it was their duty. It was imperative. It was, it was a step that had to be taken if there was to be any deliverance of these people, any a rescuing of them from the road that they were on, there had to be repentance followed by this conversion that we read about in the next words. And we may therefore state that in applying his message, Peter issued a call to repentance. That's a call that comes to you at this very moment from this text. A call to repentance. And that's the subject that I want to consider tonight in this meeting. And I pray that God the Holy Spirit will come in all His fullness and He will bring the Word home to your hearts and especially to those in this meeting who need to repent, who need to turn from sin and get to Jesus Christ. May God, by His Spirit, give you the gift of repentance. That will lead to that turning to the Savior, that you might be rescued from your sin. I want to look, to begin with at the reason for repentance. Notice how those opening words of verse 19 run, repent ye therefore. And the little word, well it's not a little word, it's a very important word. That word therefore underlines the reason for repentance. It spells out the requirement of repentance and it's firmly based on sound reasoning. The Apostle Peter has been preaching, he has been presenting a a certain argument in which he makes this call for repentance. In a nutshell, his argument is that his hearers were altogether guilty before God. He emphasized their undeniable guilt in the sight of God and then he proceeded to urge them to repent of their sin. The notable fact is that Paul's reason for repentance and the argumentation that he's using here revolves around the attitude of his hearers toward the Lord Jesus Christ. He's charging his hearers with guilt concerning Christ concerning sin in relation to Jesus Christ and he urges them now to repent of that sin of which they were guilty concerning the Lord Jesus in particular. Oh yes, all of their sin comes into this call for repentance but it's especially their sin concerning the Savior. You see, Peter charges them with the death of Jesus Christ. In verse number 15 he says this, that ye killed the Prince of Life. Ye killed the Prince of Life. Many of those addressed, many at least, had had a share in the Savior's execution. You remember how the Jews on that dark day at Calvary cried out, away with him, crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. And therefore, the Jewish nation, as a whole actually, represented by their religious leaders, handed Jesus Christ over to His death, and for that they were responsible, for that they were actually guilty. And now they are commanded to repent of that specific sin as well, as repent of all other sins. But you see, what was literally true of them in sending Christ to His death is morally true of you. Sin is essentially, I want you to think about what I'm going to say. Sin is essentially an attempt to put the Lord to death in a certain way and in a certain fashion. I speak of the nature of sin. Sin is rebellion, sin is defiance of God, of His law, sin is treason against the Godhead. Every sin is actually an attempt to tear God from His throne and the sinner thereby be elevated to a place of authority and a place, as they say it, of freedom. That's what sin actually is. Sin is actually the wish as well that God did not exist, that He were out of the way somehow or other because sinners want to occupy the place of control and the place of being able to live and embark on a course of pleasure all the time and fulfill their evil lusts and gratify their wicked longings. That's what sin is. You remember what was said to to Adam and Eve in the garden when the first sin ever committed on this earth was committed. And there they were told by the old devil as he deceived Eve, Ye shall be as gods. And the word for gods there is the Hebrew noun noun Elohim, the word for God. And so it could be read, Ye shall be as God. Which means that the devil was telling them that they would be in the place of God, that they would be their own masters, that they would be accountable to no one. And therefore in their sin, They were wishing that God were gone, that they would have this imaginary freedom to do what they would like and pursue their wickedness and their sin. That's already in their hearts, you see, because before they ever ate of that fruit, they already were fallen. That's why they listened to the devil. That's why Eve was deceived. She couldn't have been deceived if she were unfallen at that moment when the devil came along. The devil could only have an inroads into Eve's mind because she was already a sinner, already fallen. And the same with Adam who was actually standing there beside his wife as the narrative shows you. And so, here are our first parents and this was their sin, the first sin And every sin since that is an attempt to commit deicide, that is, the murder of God. Of course, that's not possible, but it doesn't stop sinners from wanting rid of God and wanting rid of His Son and wanting rid of truth and holiness and righteousness and everything that is is according to the mind of God is especially true, may I say, of those who reject Christ. Paul writes in Hebrews this way concerning Christ rejectors. He says that they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and they put him to an open shame. Think about that sinner. Every time you reject Christ. You are essentially saying within your being, I want rid of Christ. I want Him crucified, that He will never appear again. And I'll be able to go on sinning and living the way I want to do. And with this, you are being charged tonight by God. When He calls upon you to repent because every sin is defiance of God. It's the utterance of the awful wish. Let there be no God. That's what sin is. He also charged them with regard to this call to repentance and what they needed to turn from. He charged them as well with preferring destruction instead instead of Christ. Look at verse 14 and 15. It says toward the end of verse 14, ye desired a murderer, and then verse 15, kill the prince of life. The murderer in view there, of course, is Barabbas, as we learn from the Gospels, and Barabbas was a murderer. He was also a robber, we're told in John's Gospel. And with those facts, there's a tremendous play here on the words that Peter uses. He says, Ye desired a murderer, and remember, he was a robber. Ye desired a murderer and a robber, and ye killed the Prince of Life. There is a tremendous play in those words. Because as a murderer, Barabbas was a robber of life. Yes, he was a thief in other ways, obviously. He stole other people's goods, that's clear. But whenever Barabbas killed, for he did, he was a murderer, he robbed somebody of that person's life. That's why murder is such an awful crime. And every time a a murder is committed, the devil is on the scene because he is not only the father of lies, he's the father of murder in particular. And so they chose a person who was a murderer and a robber. And now they're charged with that because at the same time, they killed the Prince of Life. Notice that, the Prince of Life. I've spoken about the play in the words A murderer who takes away life. A robber of life. The prince of life. The word prince means author. The author of life. And so they rejected the author of life and they chose the one who robs of life. My dear friend, in that, notice something very, very important and something very, very solemn. It's an illustration of the wretched choice that sinners make when they despise Christ. Because in despising Christ and rejecting Christ, they choose sin, and therefore they choose that which robs them, that murders them, morally and spiritually, and then ultimately eternally. That's what sin does. It robs people. It kills them. In a moral spiritual sense, and then it takes them down to hell into everlasting punishment and eternal ruin. James says, sin when it is finished, brings forth death. And Paul writes those well-known words in Romans 6:23 that, about sin. The wages of sin is death. A sinner, this is what you are playing with. This is what's on your account. This is is that which God charges you with as a sinner before Him. You prefer destruction instead of the Savior. Peter also charged his hearers with despising what Christ was able to do for them. In verse 16 he reminds them of the lame man who had been placed at the gate of the temple for many, many years and who was healed when Peter and John were going into the temple as you find in the first part of this chapter. And by faith that man had received what was needed to transform him and change him, not only physically but spiritually. And Peter stresses on the fact that his hearers were aware they were aware of all that happened that man. In verse 16, he refers to the fact, in these words, that they were not unfamiliar with the man. He said, whom ye see and know. And so every day, there he was sitting at the temple gate. And these religious sinners going in and out. And there's a man sitting there, and they see him every day. And they know him. And furthermore, not only do they know him, see him and know him, but they're also witnesses of the change that has taken place in this man's body, in this man's life. Because in verse 16, Peter refers to this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. The application of that is very, very obvious. Because in refusing Jesus Christ, they were refusing the one who had changed that man whom they knew very, very well. And by the same token, when you despise Christ or reject Jesus Christ, who's presented to you in the gospel, but also seen by you and what he has done for other people, you are guilty of, therefore, of despising what Christ is able to do for you. I don't hesitate for one moment to say this. You unsaved people sitting here tonight in this meeting, maybe online as well, you cannot say, can you, that you have never met anybody whom the Lord has saved. You have met such people. Indeed, there may be someone in your life who's very, very close to you, and you can see for yourself that the Lord has changed that person in your life whatever the relationship might be in terms of someone you know you know someone who has been changed and you've seen the evidence of it and that's what Peter's doing in verse 16 with these Jews whom he calls on to repent he said you're not an ignorance you've seen all this before your very eyes you've seen the change and you've seen the perfect soundness that the Lord gave that man who had sat from the very earliest days of his life. He was born this way. And yet the Lord comes along and he changes him and he transforms him. And these Jews saw it. They knew it. They couldn't deny it. And therefore, they are charged in this call to repentance with despising the Christ who was able to do for them what he had done physically and spiritually for that lame man. My friend, I say again to you tonight, you cannot say that you don't know anybody who's saved, truly saved. You can't say that. And maybe there's someone like that in your home or your family or among your neighbors, some acquaintance, it could be very, very close. And here you are, and time after time after time, you've turned a blind eye to the, to the evidence of grace in that person's life, and you have plunged on stubbornly to follow the way of sin. You're charged with that tonight. Peter also showed them that they could not plead that they were in total darkness. Verse 17 does say, Now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. And so, for a time they were in ignorance, to some degree or other, as Peter points out here. But then you see, the Word of God was there all the time. And the Word of God was full of this, that the Christ of God, the Messiah, would come into the world. He would fulfill what God had said He would do. He would suffer. He would die. He would rise from the dead. And you see, the Lord arose from the dead and showed many infallible proofs. And these Jews, though they are are suppressing their consciences and though they're fighting against light, They know full well that the Lord is alive, that the Lord rose from the dead, that the Lord has all the power that is needed to save them. And therefore, Peter takes them to the word. Those things which God had before showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. And you see, what he's saying there is You have been made acquainted with the Word of God. You may be able to say, well, there was a time in my life when I didn't know any of these things. I lived in darkness or ignorance of truth. And of course, that's your natural state to begin with. And I followed the way of life and so on and then... Now, my friend, you're under the sound of the Word. Even this were the only time you are in a gospel meeting or in a, a, a service like this. Now you're hearing of what Christ has done out of the book, out of the Word of God. You know, my friend, the Bible teaches that greater light brings greater responsibility and accountability. What great volumes of light and truth some of you Have received. You have knowledge. You are not in the dark concerning Christ. Therefore, you should repent at once, because if you don't, your punishment will be of the greatest magnitude. Paul wrote to the Hebrews and said this. In Hebrews 10 and verse number 29, let me read the verse to you. It's an awful verse. It says, Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? How much sorer punishment will be for the man or the woman or the young person who sits in gospel meetings like this, Here's the truth, is presented with Christ, appealed to to come to Christ, repent of sin, and you go away. And what are you doing? The Bible says you're trampling underfoot the Lord's blood. And you're doing despite to the Holy Ghost. And my friend, if you do not repent of that, your punishment, Your hell will be deep and greater by far than the poor, darkened soul who never hears the gospel. All, all who are not born again will perish. But oh, the perishing, oh, the hell of the person who has been cradled in the gospel. So here we find the reason for repentance that Paul brings out in these verses and it applies to you. But then look at the result of repentance. Oh, well, it says here, repent there ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. And the result of repentance is pardon. In other words, the two matters are inseparable. Where repentance is real, pardon is also real. When there's a genuine turning from sin to Jesus Christ, this is the wonderful result. Your sins are blotted out. Now just look at that word, blotted out, because it's a remarkable word. It says there, your sins will be blotted out. And the word means to wipe out, to remove. It actually signifies the idea of something that disappears. That's how graphic the word is. It actually comes, this word for blotted out, from the practice that was followed in ancient times, not up, on, not, uh, up until not very long ago, in a sense, but the practice of, of writing on a wax tablet. Now, I don't think any of us may have ever done that, but... It was a common practice, and so you had a tablet that was covered with wax, and you took a stylus, an old-fashioned article for writing, and you wrote in the wax. And in this case, the reference here is to putting down numbers, figures, and then adding them all up, and computing, and that's how they did it. But when they had their work done, and their computation all worked out. You know what they did then? They took that same tablet. You know what you do with your tablet in these days? You can wipe it and you remove all that you've put down. Well, they did it physically. They simply smoothed the wax and the figures and the numbers disappeared. That's where that word blotted out comes from, or the verb blotted out it comes from that kind of imagery and that's a remarkable thing when the debts were paid the wax was flat or was flattened and smoothed and the figures disappeared they were no longer seen and god's getting across to you in this wonderful way what it means for your sins to be blotted out you know he speaks of that in the old testament isaiah 45 about sin being blotted out. And here in the New Testament, only here, but in Colossians 2, about the blood of Christ blotting out our sins. That wonderful verse, Colossians 2, 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. Where were sins blotted out? At the cross, at Calvary. Sin was blotted out for all those who will trust in Christ. And then, when you come to Christ experientially, your sin is removed. God no longer sees it. He says, Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. They are removed. They are gone. They're no longer in view. Why is that? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has made satisfaction for sin. There's the issue. Why do we have sins? What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. The law must be satisfied. The law's not set aside. The law you've broken, my friend, broken over and over and over again, from the very moment you come into this world, you're a lawbreaker, you're guilty, and you can't get away from that. And therefore the sin that's against you is of a tremendous magnitude. But for sin. Christ has made perfect satisfaction. The law demands with all its vehemence perfection. It holds inflexible justice against the sinner. If that perfect obedience is not given, and you can't give it, but Christ has given it. And therefore Paul or Peter could say to these people, repent that your sins may be blotted out. It wasn't that their repentance bought this blotting out for them. That's not what it means. It means that when they repented and turned to the Lord Jesus away from their sin, but turned to Him, the precious blood, the perfect obedience of Christ, blotted out, Every one of their sins and their slates were clean. The tablet was no longer filled with marks of guilt against them. They were clear. And you may say in your heart tonight, well, I don't see how my sin could be blotted out. It's so great. So many sins, horrific sins, sins I would dearly love to erase out of my mind. You're tormented with the memory of them. You don't know what to do about them. My friend, you can do nothing about them. Not one stain can you remove. You need to get to Christ, and he will wash them away. And you will be clean. That's the result of this repentance. And then the refreshing in repentance, as I come toward an end here, it says that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing uh, will come from the or shall come from the presence of the Lord. And as I studied this verse and looked at it the other day I found that it may be read this way. Indeed, this is. In a sense, the right way to read it. Repent ye and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What is this? This is Peter telling these people that when they would come to Christ and repent of their sin and trust in Him, then there would be a whole new life seasons of refreshing signifying joy and peace the enjoyment of the great promises of the gospel the application of the blood and the righteousness of christ to their penitent hearts and to their converted souls all of that was going to come this is my friend the refreshing that repentance brings you see as men and women live in their sins No matter what they are, no matter how moral they think they are, and maybe you try to tell yourself, well, I don't have too many sins. Ah, my friend, if you only knew. If you could only see your heart as God sees it, you would discover that the amount of sin you have is incalculable. It is enormous, and it is terrible. It's black, it's blameworthy, it's ruinous. So don't deceive yourself into thinking that you don't have many sins. Remember even saying, I don't have any at all, hardly. You have multitudes of sins. But you see, here's what I'm saying to you. As a sinner, you are in misery. You're living in misery. You're living in fear. You're living with a guilty conscience. You're living Taking account of yourself and knowing the state of your life. And yet, the Lord is showing you that there's something here that He calls the time of refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. And He says, Repent, be converted, your sin will be blotted out, and your life will change. Your life will change. If you look at the next verse, verse 20, it continues. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. What's he saying there? Come to the Lord in his own way, on his own terms. And he not only will blot out your sins and only change your life, but he'll send Christ into your life. All of this is said to these people against the call to repentance. And therefore you can't divorce verse verse 19, the close of it, and verse 20 from that call to repent. Here is the refreshing that comes to the penitent soul. The burden lifted. The misery gone. The Lord coming to live in your heart and in your soul. Just think about that. Turn to the Lord tonight in repentance from your sin and He will Not only change your life, but He will send Jesus Christ to you to live in your life, to dwell in your soul by His Spirit and reside there from this day onwards until you leave this world to go to be with the Savior. You see, your whole life is marked by the effects of sin, unhappiness, discontentment, fear, the dread of eternity. Isn't that right? What are you to do? Who can change this? This is what the gospel is all about. This is the call to repentance. And you know, he goes on to say in verse 21, whom the heavens must receive until the times of restitution. There's the final and wonderful aspect of this whole refreshing scene The day when the Lord will come. And that will usher in glory. So now there is refreshing for the soul. And there's a whole change of direction. And the Lord comes to live in the heart. And then the great day itself, when He comes in glory, He'll raise up those who have repented of their sin. And body and soul will be changed forever to live with the Lord in glory. Sinner, that's what the gospel does for poor, lost, guilty ones like you. Why then will you not come to Christ? Why then have you refused, and at this moment are still refusing, the Son of God? May you seek Him tonight with all your heart. If you wish to speak with me or Mr. Stewart, We'd be glad to meet with you afterwards, glad to sit down and help you from the Word of God and show you more of what you need to know concerning your spiritual state. Let us bow for a moment's prayer. Eternal God and Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will take the Word and bless it tonight, for His glory, for the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. May sinners be drawn unto Thee. May repentance be given. May they be delivered by Thy grace. We pray this in Jesus' name, asking Thee to abide with us in these next closing moments. We ask this for Christ's sake and for His eternal praise. Amen and amen.